Hello and welcome to another episode of the St. George's Rod and Staff, the official podcast of the Church of St. George the Martyr in Galesdorf. Alongside the chapelries of St. Mark and St. Monica's, I am Lindsay Shooters, your host on this exploration of faith during this time of continued crisis. And I'm joined as always by the rector of the parish, the Archdeacon Rodney Whiteman. How are you today? Good day, Lindsay. Um, had a refreshing experience going to Wellington to do a wedding of the beautiful couple Kyle and Jamie um, mm-hmm. in those in the really beautiful part of the world and a place called Kalk Uwant in Wellington. Nice refreshing drive and um, so uh, coming home now, a little bit tired of the drive, but you know it's a good tired. And um, we are in a good space as far as we can be. And a little bit of a, what's the name with my sister, complaining of chest pains. And she had gone to see the doctor and the doctor said it was only stress. So we're grateful that it's nothing to do with the heart. And then um, I was, we were able to see my mom on Monday who came all the way to vote at the local station here where she's registered with us. So um, we went into the into the, uh, the voting station together and I could assist her. So that was also good. Um, the rest of the family all doing as well as we can. And I trust the same for you and your family. Uh, yes, uh, we got a bit cultural today. We visited the Castle of Good Hope. Um, yeah, it was a, a interesting experience. I haven't been since I was a small child, so yeah, it was quite a quite an experience. Got the kids also up to speed with some. So Isla was obviously doing a project a week ago, two weeks ago, about um, what was it? The Indians, or at least the Hindu community in South Africa. And okay. through the research, he came into contact with the Indian Ocean slave trade. Um, and then I had taken her back to like where it all started, how Cape Town was formed, and then obviously how the colonies changed hands from the Dutch to the British. So she um, kept looking at me whenever the guide was talking about the uh, the routes, the trade routes, and then he mentioned like the slavery and the trade of like spices and stuff. So yeah, that was that was quite interesting, and it it was good to see them see the absolutely appalling circumstances that the prisoners lived in. Mm. were held in in the torture chambers and those sorts of things. Yeah, it's good to go down the bad parts of our history, our our turbulent history. It was a good day. Mm. Mm. And yet those slaves survived. How was and is their story being told? Yes. Because history books won't tell you that. Always. Mm Mm-mm. And so, yeah. um, so, but I think it's, you know, you need to see it in order to then say what is, is the real or alternate history. Um, I was listening to a an American lady, white lady, who 
is very much against uh, working against racism and um, has no bones about talking about how even geography was wrongly taught in the past to yes. give the impression yeah. that the northern hemisphere was much better, bigger and smarter than the those below the equator. And they even drew the equator wrong. Um, mm. Part of which the church had, had, had as you can tell, because the Pope wanted to see just where Christianity was spreading to. Uh, so he had control of the calendar and they used that to teach even in today's schools. She says they have this geography map, which is the wrong map of the world. Um, on on this very interesting. So I kept wondering as I listened to her, how much of what we were taught, especially socially, which includes geography and history, how much of that which we were taught, which we had to write to pass, some went on to university to study, and others wrote masters and doctoral degrees graduating with it, based on perhaps inaccurate information. Um, but that was the information available in the books by the so-called historians of the time. So in a way, those scholars are now, modern scholars are now, challenged to write the alternate history um, so that our children, like either of them, can go and see the place that is written about and also the untold stories and discover what that story is for our benefit. Mm -hmm. That was very important. And I mean, given my background, um, I'm, I'm all about teaching them the as right as I know it to be um, history, like where the Groot Trek wasn't because of a couple of people who were trying to escape persecution by a new foreign power. It was because they were told that they couldn't hold slaves anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, um, it's, it's amazing how just, just not saying that in the history books gave you a different perception of the Groot Trek. Yes, yes, yes. And like even something as simple as like why Cape Malays are called Cape Malays. And it's like because the Dutch owned Indonesia, which they also referred to as Malaysia back then, uh, Batavia, and then they brought them here and called them Cape Malays when they started intermingling. With so they had to make a distinction. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. slaves didn't, those years, slaves, I mean, in the times the Bible was written and before, slaves had no, had no right to a name yes. except the name of the person that owned them. Or and, the uh, month that they came into the country. As you said, yeah, last week you, yeah. you picked yeah. that up. Um, because all sense of ownership was taken away from them. Mm -hmm. uh, like, for example, you you know you have, um, you know, Cape Malays to distinguish them from another kind of Malaysia. They created, as it were, almost another social group. Yeah. Simply to have control over them. 
And, like, and yeah, if you go to, I think I also mentioned that, like, there was a video that went viral of uh, South African and um, an Indonesian, and they were talking their home language, and, like, it's so close to each other because yeah. it's both forms of Dutch. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. It's, it's fascinating. And these stories Absolutely. must be told. Um, just Absolutely. like I see. I see uh, your theme that you have extracted for the 24th Sunday after Pentecost is she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. And that's not actually from the collect where you usually pull your, your themes from. It's from the um, gospel reading. And then you have a quote from Mother Teresa. <laughs> we think sometimes that poverty is only being hungry, naked and homeless. The poverty of being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for is the greatest poverty. We must start in our own homes and remedy this kind of poverty. So my controversial views on Mother Teresa are quite well known, uh, mostly because instead of actually delivering health care and kind of getting people back onto their feet and putting, leaving them in a better position, she was more into converting poor people to Christianity and giving more like hospice kind of care and not actually fixing their problem. Mm. Yeah. Well, she's acknowledged and yet again, wonder, one in terms of what you're saying, one wonders who, who, who acknowledges this um, missionary and saint. Uh, she mm. was sainted mm -hmm. by John Paul, the, the 23rd, I think, sainted a uh, uh, or is it, or is it, yeah, it was John Paul who yeah. sent it out. And um, would the people of India recognize her as a missionary? And what is a missionary? Is a missionary somebody that comes into a situation in terms of a colonized people to win them over to the beliefs of the colonizer? and give them some form of social upliftment, but not too much, because they still have to remain subservient to the colonizer. Was a missionary like St. Paul and others, who ended, often ended up <coughs> in prison because of their, uh, what they spoke about and how they built the church? So that that, that word missionary is a very interesting one. And would the Indians have seen her as somebody who, would, who could be embraced as a missionary? Then, of course, out of a mission work, she is then sainted by the Roman church because she did what nobody else did. And the, uh, I think in order to be a saint in the Roman church, there's got to be evidence that a miracle was performed in your through your ministry. Yes. Um, and I know there was a struggle to find out if there was such a miracle. Um, miracle being something spectacular, something that we as human beings on our own can't achieve, but that God would use you to create the miracle. But 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 I think, um, for me, the simple-minded person I am, the miracle is uh, 
a lot in her writings, whether she lived by them or not, I'm, that's not my concern. I'm inspired by what she says. Yeah, we must start in our homes to remedy this kind of poverty. Who would have thought that this kind of poverty, being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for, could be described as, as poverty? Because we use other names for it in, in our normal definition of, of, um, of um, individuals who seem to have lost their way from their family life. But I like the Clint Bogan um, uh, was well said for me. Poverty is relatively cheap to address and incredibly expensive to ignore. Uh, mm. I think that was a very interesting, of course, uh, Madiba's one equally so. Um, yeah, overcoming but, poverty is not a gesture of charity. It is an act of justice. It is the protection of a fundamental human right, the right to dignity and a decent life. It's interesting that that idea of, of a decent life is is a very loaded concept. Yeah, yeah. What is a decent life? You know, it just figures of something in me when I was watching um, a YouTube that said offering haircuts to homeless people just you know, I mean, can you imagine you using your tools that you would use on so-called decent people whose hair is clean and all that, and now you take the venture from that which you're doing into a place where you are trying to bring dignity and offer the person a new way of looking at themselves. Uh, it just popped in my head when you've emphasized the whole thing of the decent living. Mm. Yeah, it's it's gonna it's gonna come up in the in the liturgy. Um, okay. But but please, uh, if you could call us together with a collective prayer, and I'll catch up with you after that. The Lord be with you, my dear sisters and brothers. Thank you for joining us, and join me now in the prayer of the collect for this the 24th Sunday after Pentecost. The prayer is on your screen. Let us pray. God of compassion and grace, your concern for widows and strangers is from of old. Stand among us in Christ. Give us generous hearts. Care for those whom the world passes by. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. As the Archdeacon said, the prayers are in the podcast description and the choice verses from the readings. The first reading is from Ruth, chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, and then chapter 4, verses 3 to 17. 13. Then Naomi... Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek a home for you so that you may find security? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you were, our relative? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Bathe and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Go down to the floor, but do not let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down to sleep, 
Note the place where he is lying. Go and uncover his feet and lie down. <coughs> he will tell you what you should do. She said to her, I will do whatever you say. Unpack this for us. Because <laughs> it, it's, oh. a, it's, a it's a little confusing. So there's, there's the... Like Naomi's kind of taking exception to this relationship. But then also gives her all of the rules and regulations for, you know, figuring out, discerning what his desires are. Am I am I reading it correctly? I I think she's setting her up with a man. <laughs> to yeah. Put, <laughs> to put it blatantly, and she's looking at the situation of um, him being able to offer Ruth a stable kind of life. It's very interesting that one of the translations talk about uh, my daughter. Should I give you rest? Should I find rest yes. for you? And rest is determined to be restful with the family and that kind of stability in your life. Yeah. So it's a it's isn't it part of Naomi's caring spirit over this daughter who pledged herself to uh, being with Naomi even till the point of till whenever death comes, and so she is now showing, as it were, or reciprocating the care that her daughter-in-law had. Um, and it's interesting, the text calls Naomi her mother-in-law, whereas yeah. Naomi's words starts with my daughter. Mm. So, it, uh, you know, that sort of is a little bit more inclusive kind of, of language. But what you find here is the cultural stuff that, that happened. Part of of the, uh, you know, to servant girls, and who knows, amongst these girls, they were also trying to capture Boaz's attention as mm. a, a matrimonial um, partner. Um, but, and then I, I, I just read that apparently why they were sleeping on the on the uh, on the on the threshing floor was that uh, after uh, you know barley was renowned uh, it was ready to be stolen by thieves for for their market so this was one way of protecting um, the produce having now uh, been uh, sifted and so um, the the uh, you, you find cultural stuff there, and I will be giving um, Ruth the kind of thing she should do in order to get Boaz's attention, um, which, of course, in the next part, um, four to thir 13 to 17, tells us that, in fact, that is what that is what happened. But here were cultural things that I think you and I would have problems with, such as <coughs> when he lies down to sleep, place... Note the place where he's lying. Go and uncover his feet and lay there. I, I, he will tell you what to do. So that was one way in which Naomi was giving Boaz a hint of where mm. all this should go. Now, it's very interesting that um, uh, some scholars believe that when she was told to uncover his feet and lie under it, that implied sexual contact but according to 
other other scholars it says there's no evidence for that it would be it would be out of place of the story so yeah when you say that it you know you have to say what does the whole story tell you what is what is the whole story telling you so there were certain cultural things that you and i would not know about i mean lying at the feet of a man um and covering his feet and being as close to him where you in a subservient position because you're lying at his feet why would that be a cultural suggestion i'm ready to be your wife so so those are some of the things you and i would have difficulty understanding but i understand that there is a cultural um, dynamic in here that we have to learn to accept and learn about um it was was ruth in such a subservient totally dependent um woman that she needed boaz's attention in this kind of way and one would say no um i mean somebody who was willing to unroot herself from her own family and commit herself to somebody she's gotten to love even though there were losses along the way for her is a, a strong woman of principle and uh, uh, you know your god will be my god your people will be my people um taking on that as a way of life for her and um and but also uh, someone who remained obedient to naomi uh, her mother figure uh whom she respected mm. and so she she in she her life also talks about the 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 attitude of of obedience um the openness to receiving the concern and care of her mother-in-law and taking the risk to do what her mother-in-law uh, directed her to do encouraged her to mm. think um at great risk because she could have been rejected yeah but we were we were speaking of a about the idea of putting on a mask and here naomi is directing ruth and ruth is almost like in the fullness of of the the book um the it does become quite a heartfelt love that she shares sure um so but it starts with this premise where it's it's not it's not genuine it's not ruth's decision she's lost the agency she's she's putting on this mask this role taking on this role that she now needs to play uh do we do we empathize with her do we feel that she's kind of lost her humanity in this situation i think she's found she's finding a way into the new way of life that she's committed herself to given the chapter the chapter 1 that we explored last week mm. where she's as i said earlier on she's broken from her roots and found in naomi and in naomi's way of life a new way of life for her so if that's what's going to happen then would would naomi's direction not be important for her naomi's schooling of her um of how things would would need to be for a in this new way of life so yes she's very dependent on naomi's guidance and naomi's wisdom and naomi's courage to to say the things that she says into to direct her in the way that she is but 
I think it is yet again the fundamental part of, of one of the fundamental parts of this book. Yet two women, uh, two generations of women with a connection of um, mother and daughter in law, find one another and hold hands and venture um, mm. and, and care for one another. Um, so, so here is, um, and, and, and these are women who, whilst they are bonded through marriage and bonded through the death of the, uh, this, the loved ones that they shared, are, are, from, are from two different ethnic, um, uh, ethnic groups. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I've just been studying a bit of it, and it's really how Gentiles were became, beginning to get introduced into the the wider Israelite family. Now we do know that Israel's were Israelites were quite. If some of the books, if you read Ezra, for example, he discouraged marriages like this, uh, <coughs> and therefore relationships like this. Um, because they thought they needed to be purely Israel. But when you read the history of Israel, there's no homogeneous um, group you find. Um, even historians will tell you that when they came out of Egypt, there would have been Egyptians amongst them looking for a new way of living. But they all about the lineage with the Abram and all of that stuff, <laughs> the 12 tribes who are named after the 12 sons and all of those things. Yeah, yeah. that was that was important. I mean, isn't it interesting that Ruth becomes one of the ancestors of our Lord? Yes. Through this marriage. And then, through this marriage, there's um, inclusion. Yeah, but the, the son um, was called Abed was the father of Jesse and the father of David. Right. Yes. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so out of her, a king is born. Exactly. And, and this, this goes to show, like, if you go far enough back, well, for, for you and me, not too far back, <laughs> mm -hmm. you, can, you can trace your heritage to a little bit of, of crossbreeding, if, <laughs> if you will allow me that. Well, I, I, you know, uh, early on I spoke to you about a lady, uh, Miss Elliot, Jane Elliot, I think, uh, uh, a mm. white lady who's, who's obviously an educator. And when you listen to her talking, you're fascinated by the kind of things that she's just willing to say. Mm. And she talks about, I mean, she uses the word, um, the person interviewing her is African-American, and she says, you're one of my cousins as a way to show that there's a connection to us. And our ancestor, she says, is an African woman. Mm. And those who believe in whiteness, she says, must really understand that their ancestor is an African woman. In other words, we are born from an African woman, all of us. Mm. And the only reason why our skin colors are different was that in the migration with different climatic conditions, you, your body adapted to, to certain climatic conditions. And that is why 
she she said there was um, <clears throat> an incident in her life when she I think it was a husband who worked at a grocery store and they had excess um, of orange of orange juice that was selling for cheap and she just kept plowing her children full of orange juice noticing mm. that pigmentation of their skin became orange so she was worried and she took them to the doctor and the doctor said what are you feeding these children in excess so she said um, orange juice so she said that's why the skin is what it is so i was quite fascinated by this and so um yes it does take us back i'm 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 not i'm not so sure how many of us want to be taken back because i think africa was bad-mouthed along the path so much that none of us wanted to be associated with africa rather with so-called ancestral ranges from the european countries yes um but research as time and time again been showing no it goes back to those times and you know one of the things that i found fascinating was when i listened to a sermon one day <coughs> preached on the genealogy of jesus from matthew's gospel now i think it's only matthew and luke that talk to the genealogy of jesus the other two gospels don't make reference to that as part of the the story of jesus the gospel of jesus and and when this preacher dissected all of it there were things in there that 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 is so helpful to have learned that um it was important for us to know about and how jesus in embracing our humanity god in embracing our humanity is not ashamed of his earthly rootedness so now you can understand if if he understood that part of his ancestral group was a moabite woman he had no bones in sitting around uh, a well talking to a samaritan woman yeah so how did jesus look at people how did he view people and you would notice here that because of ruth's association with naomi boaz accepts her not based on and not prejudice towards her ancestral heritage but the fact that she is someone whose cv was compiled by naomi yeah yeah Oh, that's really interesting. Um, yes, continue. No, no, no. You can go on. <laughs> I was going to change gears towards the gospel now because you the... can you can change gears, my brother. <laughs> uh, because the the Hebrews text is uh, it just builds on what we've been been speaking about like for the last three weeks. Yeah. Um, where it's like, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands. A mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, so that he now appears in the presence of God on our behalf. Sorry for my tone through that. I, <laughs> um, uh, my secular ways do come out in in the worst times, and I, I really apologize um, for that. 
that was that was a bit out of line. Um, yeah, it just again reiterates the idea that Jesus is far is the high priest of that everyone should all the high priests should be aspiring to. It's like they it's it's in this letter to the audience, the audience of like staunch Hebrew believers culturally like entrenched. It it is the way of the author just trying to open their minds to the idea that they can cast off their beliefs of like the high priest and the role of the high priest because Jesus has now replaced all of that. So it's it's the it's the the gospel of conversion, if you will. Um, am, am I completely off of track here, Father? What did you learn at, at, at in theology no. school? I I think um, I mean look when you when you're learning to be priests, you you are attached to the idea of the priesthood of Jesus, mm. um, and so uh, and so we cannot assume any form of priesthood in the Christian faith if you ignore. Um, the priesthood of Jesus. Um, mm. It is his priesthood into which we are called to share. We don't, we don't, um, we, we cannot be uh, priests without him who is the, the priest. Um, I think that this also just generates the understanding of what priest, priesthood is. Um, like now he appears in the presence of God on our behalf. That is what the Le Levitical priesthood would have been in the Old Testament, going into the Holy of Holies, as it were, with the breastplate of all the all the 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 the, the, the peoples, and holding them before God. So, in other words, uh, <laughs> that idea that the priest comes into God's presence on behalf of the people. And the understanding that this authors have is that Jesus, because he is the high priest, a very unique high priest, who's made the ultimate sacrifice for the, for all for whom he died, now continues to stand before God and pleading our cause on our behalf. But it's also the same thing in the Old Testament. That priest comes before us on behalf of God. So mm. he came on behalf of God and he became the, the sacrifice um, for us. So, um, and we know that his kind of priesthood does not need annual sacrifices. The sacrifice is once and for all. And it's very interesting that in the Anglican Church, you have different um, traditions that are embraced in the one Anglican church. The evangelical um, persons who want to claim that they are evangelical would 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 say that there's something in our in our Eucharistic prayers, I think the first and the second one, the first and the third and the fourth one, which talks about Jesus uh, as a, uh, Jesus as a sacrifice. They do not believe you must use the word sacrifice. So they use the second Eucharistic prayer only, and the words that they would say that well, Jesus offered himself mm. so to, to, because the sacrifice was complete. He no longer in their minds is the sacrifice. He's not being sacrificed every time. 
So in the sacrifice, he offered himself. So now we celebrate the offering of himself as the sacrifice and not uh, assuming the sacrifice is, is incomplete. Um, <clears throat> so, so yes, we embrace this because the priesthood depends very much on who Jesus as the high priest is. That is why we attach ourselves so squarely to John 17, uh, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Mm. So as the priest, we pray. We pray on behalf of the people before God. We come to the people on behalf of God. So when we stand and preach, when we stand and celebrate, when we stand and bless, these are all coming to the people on behalf of God and going to God on behalf of the people. Mm. Yeah, and, and it's 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 less you identifying as someone who was placed by God to mediate that than it is you accepting your role as the leader of people towards an a relationship with God. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that kind of um, assurance to to people. We we also have to understand that there's a concept in the Peter writings where priestliness is not confined to those ordained. Yeah. So so in other words, the gathered people around the altar on a Sunday morning are the priestly people that are being empowered. For ministry in the world, mm. so in, so so I, I, there's a theologian called Henry Nouwen who said that when you and I come into church and we stand before God's altar to worship, to receive the gospel and to receive the assurance of forgiveness and to receive the sacrament and to receive the blessing and the commission, we stand there with other people, known and unknown to us, that are part of us, in our minds, in our experiences, in our memories, people we've passed by on the road, people we work for, people in our family. So even if they are not in church, they are in church because you are there. So mm. you're bringing them with you before God, and you then take God with you to them. So this concept of priesthood is very key. However, there was only one priest that made the ultimate sacrifice for salvation, and that is Jesus Christ. So Hebrews is, is focusing very strongly on what the priesthood of Christ is for, for all of humanity and creation. Mm -hmm. That is very interesting. And that leads in nicely to Mark chapter 12, verse 38 to 44, where as he taught, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And then obviously they sit down opposite treasury and a poor widow comes and oh, they see all the rich people putting in their large sums. And then they see this poor widow and she puts in a, two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called to his, his disciples and said to them, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. 
for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So there's a lot of concepts going on here. There's that idea of the people who wear the mask and expect all of the platitudes that come with it. Um, yep. In this case, it's the, the scribes who are so in... Um, yeah, they, they, the entire existence is hinged on what they have, the knowledge that they have managed to, which, fair enough, you put in the effort to gain all the knowledge, you read all the texts, it wasn't an easy job, but, you know, you don't really need any reward for that. The reward is your own. Um, but then, on the flip side, there's this idea of giving everything you have, and it's a shame that in this specific text, it is literally, it's, it's like a physical giving where you could extend the idea to one of like, give everything you have inside you, like of your spirit, of your, if you are committed to this idea of Christianity, of following God, of living like Jesus, you know, put all of yourself into it. But here it is now. And a lot of, I've heard many preachers weaponize this line um, to get their flock to donate or to give as much as they can into the collection plate. Where do you stand on, on, on these two concepts at play here? One of the, the, the dangerous themes to preach on in, in, any, in, in a church service is about money. So I choose not to preach about money. Um, yeah. because it does lead people to ask questions because there's almost a sense in which you, when you preach about money, you're rejecting those who have, uh, who are wealthy. Um, <laughs> and so one has to be, did Jesus preach against the people? Or did he say this because he wanted to get at the rich people? No. Um, he was the the level of example which would normally be neglected to be even mentioned. Are you there? Yes. So 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 normally people will be fascinated by large sums of money. Normally the world will be fascinated with wealthy people. So their stories will appear on the front pages. Uh, Jesus comes and says, well, what is the gospel really about? It's recognizing, recognizing the, the value, the in-depth value of, of those who are not, have not, have not been able to cloud their lives, but who are really living a life very dependent and trusting on God. Mm. So, so the poor widow, she's not just a widow, which already is a status of poverty, but she's a poor widow, which means that her, her husband perhaps left her with nothing. Yet she's still dedicated, committed, like Ruth earlier on, so dedicated and, and, and committed that she is still as a member of that congregation 
and as one who seeks to follow God, giving back to God what he has blessed her with. But at the end of the day, what she's given back, which is only worth so much, relatively speaking, in the world's eyes, but when you look at the heart, when you look at the heart, the abundance of her giving is in the heart, not in the value of the, the money she gives. The value of the money suggests that this, that she is poor. That's her circumstances. And yet she gives from that poverty because of the abundance that's in her heart uh, and in her uh, faith relationship with God. Now, um, Jesus tells the story of those whose stories are not told. Um, <coughs> Jesus um, tells this because the gospel um, is a story that is a story that seeks to raise those that are not seen, those that are rejected, those that are not counted, those that are marginalized. Um, they, their stories are being captivated because their example is just so rich. Mm. Um, the world won't look deeper than than Jesus looked here at that particular setting of the of the treasury, because because we're fascinated by those who give out of their abundance. Mm. We are grateful to those who can give out of their abundance. People work hard, and people through hard work, uh, wise investments, and all of those kind of things uh, are blessed. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, as long as the abundance of their giving is in their heart and not just in the amount that they give. Therefore, they get praise as a result of that. It is the abundance. So when one looks at the generosity of St. George's membership, I look not at how much people are giving. I look generally and say this is a, is a congregation of generous people. I'm not looking at what their financial status may be because that's not my business. I'm looking at how, how, how easily they are able to pour out even when that is the, the last that they have because the, the hearts of the people as I, as I have embraced and I have encountered them here has been one of generosity on all levels. That doesn't mm. mean other churches I've worked in didn't have that. <clears throat> it was there as well, you know. So I think uh, I think Jesus is shining the spotlight of the gospel on that which, in the normal run of things, would not even be noticed because we yeah. are so yeah. fascinated by large sums and by wealth um, that we are we are not even celebrating. The, the 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 gift of those who, because of their circumstances, can only give uh, a little. I look at my mother, and I look at the fact that she is a state pensioner, and my dad never left her 
uh, lots of money. He left her a house that has got some value in it. She's not even worried about that. But every month, she ensures that her pledge is there. And I can tell you that there are many of those uh, ladies and men in their, in their pension, what's his name, that give out of their, um, their poverty, if one could call it that. And somehow, <coughs> they continue to live okay. She hasn't asked me for money. She doesn't ask my, my sister for money. She hasn't asked my brother for money as far as I remember. Mm. But it's a deep wisdom in such kind of people that we have to learn from. That we will benefit from. But as I said, my encounter with the congregation here, St. Mark's and St. Monica's, I mean, people at St. Monica's don't always have the means to get where they, where they, where other congregations can be. But I can tell you, they make every effort to ensure that there is money that's coming in for the benefit of the mission of the church in that place. Same with St. Mark's and same with St. George's. To the level where we are even able to support other people. Mm. But I, I think it's it's important to to say there that it's in line with your idea of what the mission is and how you buy into that kind of mission. So it's yeah, it's a it's a it's a tricky subject to approach, especially from from your from your perspective. And 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 I'm sorry that I was being a bit unfair in my. In my questions and and commentary there, because yeah, it's it's this is your your business and um. nothing unfair <laughs> about what you've asked and said. This is okay. all about exploration. <laughs> this is all about exploration. Um, uh, you you are correct. Um, people will use a particular theme they've identified from a from a scriptural text and run havoc mm. with it, that may not have any significance to the story itself. I mean, here Jesus criticizes Pharisees, sorry, scribes, mm. learned yeah. people whose long robes separated them from others and who wanted respect shown to them in marketplaces. These are learned people who want this affirmation, the sense of entitlement mm. and the best places in the synagogues. And then their attitude towards poverty-stricken people and their abuse of spirituality. And then you get people who come and their last is God's. Because their first is God. And, and so shouldn't she be the one getting the accolades, not these ones who are demanding respect. <coughs> she, 
You know the courage she must have had to come to the same treasury as the wealthy people and to put in her two small copper coins amidst the large sums of money. The courage she must have had as a poor widow and a woman to be able to do that is itself an incredible witness of faith and trust in the living God, whom she no doubt believed provides her every daily need. Hmm. And if you look at it from, from the perspective of, of Jesus, who for all intents and purposes at this point in his career was a politician, um, and was drumming up support for his cause. Obviously, canvassing or politicking on, on like villainizing the, the status quo um, does serve his purposes quite a bit. Like in the fullness of time, he does die for everybody's sins and all of that, but yeah, like it, it, especially coming through a, a local election now, a local government election, where you've had people probably coming to your door or riding around on buckies playing music. And, you know, everyone's kind of giving their idea, trying to win your vote, that sort of thing. So, like, it's, it's difficult for me to look past Jesus's own strategy he's using with 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 his disciples here now it's a hell of a strategy it cost him his death if he was this willing politician as you say he was politicians don't die for the cause they claim to to present to those who they want to follow them Politicians, they were, but they were, they were, they were, they were, they were a different type of politician. And at that stage, when they died, probably would not be seen as a politician. You would want yourself to be surrounded by wealthy people and therefore speak in their favor. You wouldn't want to be surrounded by poor widows. And what do they use the poor widows for as politicians? They give a hand out to one just to show how okay they are with the poor. Soon as the election is done and they've won, that poor person no longer exists for them. Jesus didn't expect anything from this person. Nowhere in this story does it actually says he asked her to follow him. There doesn't seem to be any connection between her and him and the woman. All he was saying to, to, to the, what's his name? Let, let's look at this picture. Who is giving, and, and, and it, 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 I think it's pointing to himself. Um, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So all he had to give was himself which is what he did on the cross. Hmm. And, and so, in a way, 
he emptied himself of himself, kenosis, as Paul would write in Philippians chapter 2. This is what this woman is portraying, a Christ-likeness. Yeah, um, like his, his warfare is on the, the minds of, of his disciples, trying to draw them further into to the narrative. of. <laughs> but it was a losing, it was a losing path. Yeah, they would uh, flee. They would flee in, from the crop. Was I know the assumption is because we have the benefit of knowing the end of the story. Uh, the narrative assumption is that they, or at least he, was aware of the end point. But let's walk down the path of of ignorance for a for a bit, where he had no knowledge of how things would play out. Um, so why do you think he would use words like this on the cross after he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what to do. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or take this bitter cup from me, but not my will, your will. What was he struggling with when he said those things? And he said them to the Father. If he knew that the end of the game would be winning for him. Well, why, yeah. why, why is this is the narrative of salvation still about a high priest sitting at the right side of the Father pleading our cause? Why is he still asking God for intervention into human life and existence if the battle was only won on the cross? If the battle was only achieved in the resurrection, why does he continue to pray for us? Why is he, why is he as Hebrews says, he now appears in the presence of God on our behalf? Why is he doing that? And it says here, the, the last verse, <clears throat> but to bring salvation to those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the, 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 the inclusiveness of salvation, of the act of salvation continues in the heavenly realm. He hasn't gone there to retire. Because what happened on, at the scene of the cross? They fled from him until the spirit came. But then it was still not easy. And it's still not easy to be a disciple and follower of Jesus, even though we do know by faith what the end result would be. The battle is still to journey that road. But so like right up top, you had the, the quotes from Mother Teresa and from um, Nelson Mandela. Right. So, like, my issue with Mother Teresa is that it was very much a performative version <clears throat> of caring for the poor in the service of the Catholic Church by delivering more converted Catholics. Um, and the lasting legacy of her work is tarnished because of what we know now, where people have gone back and interrogated 
um, the money trails of the donations that were sent to those organizations and the actual interventions that were played out by those org by organizations by uh, by the convent um, and it had little improvement to the circumstances within those communities. Then you have a Nelson Mandela who never could have known that the impact his 27 years in prison, his different um, speeches, his just his political career would have. And like my issue with him is maybe a naivety where he expected a government of national unity um, to be the bridge to a future equality. So he never expected that the white monopoly capital would retain their power and refuse to share or to give up some of that power and influence the way that it has. And he would not have known, but in, in similar ways uh, to, to draw a parallel between Madiba and Jesus, would not have known that the message that he was trying to spread, the example that he had set, would be bastardized by future generations and turned weaponized against the very people that he wanted to save. Um, so Jesus may have been a little bit intense with his belief of his Messiah status, of his son of God status. Uh, but in the fullness of time, like both those two storylines, Madiba and Jesus, kind of played out in the same way, wouldn't you say? Well, one of the things that you, you definitely understand is that Madiba would never say he's a, he's a messianic figure. Yeah. Although people would portray him to be that. Um, Jesus comes with a far bigger um, sense of the, the the heavenly concern was mm. the salvation of God's creation. And the only way that that could happen was in the in the divine mind was by sending the Son to be the savior of to become the savior of the world. We have gone through the, sea, the, 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 the liturgy in two seasons. Last season was Matthew, and now we in, we in Mark. Um, and we have journeyed with, the, with this gospel narrative. And we found that the, the biggest hurdle was going to be the cross. But in order to, to achieve that as the first, as, as one of the, the, the major hurdles to cross, there were other hurdles to go over. I mean, Christmas story starts with a hurdle. Where was he going to be born in a manger? There was a hurdle that his parents had to escape, so there was a migration story as part of that. Um, so all along the path to achieve the gospel of God's love for all the world and the love that saves, there were hurdles in order to achieve the, the, the ultimate goal and vision of God. 
which is still in the process of being achieved because um, not everybody responds to Jesus. That is why we called to be the church of Christ in the world, uh, go and we need to let the world. And now Mother Teresa, for example, I don't know the full her full story, but she left her rootedness in her own home to explore ministry amongst the poor. Was her original goal set out to, um, to uplift the whole of the Indian nation, or was it literally you save one at a time, you feed one at a time, you heal one at a time, and hopefully that legacy gets passed over to others, which she did do, drawing the sisters of charity into a into I think that's the order that she that she started, so that that work continues. She won't be able to do everything in a lifetime. Now, in order for this to happen, she had to interrogate those who were wealthy and who um, could support the cause um, to get the message across. I mean, I, I'm, I, I, one of the one of the things that she said really moved my heart because this, I'm told, is actually what happened. Having picked up a man in the gutters of Calcutta where the worms were already eating on his back, brought, brought him into <clears throat> the hospice. She cleaned his wounds and the stench of decay was already there and was already making her nauseous. And she said, as I wiped his wounds clean, I would say to myself in order to prevent me nauseating, this is the wounds of Jesus I'm cleaning. So there was a sense in which she was ruthless towards those that had plenty and had power. Jesus challenged the scribes, then goes into the temple and raises the level of the consciousness of his disciples, comparing power, such as the scribes had, and the power of the wealthy and the abundance, and then looking at a poor widow who had little to nothing to give and gave her all, and focusing on that and saying, where do your attention need to be when you're talking to everybody? Look at the marginalized. Look at the downtrodden and affirm and raise them because they are the forgotten of society. And so, um, so when we think of Madiba, we, we think of his understanding that the famous speech he made was that South Africa is to be inclusive of everybody. Mm. Racism on either side is wrong, although people now argue that blacks can't be racist. Racism is really a white thing. Okay, be that as it may. The question is, Though Madiba didn't know to what extent it was there, I mean, some people have interpreted Madiba's stay in prison as a divine intervention. Because had he not been incarcerated for those 27 years, he probably would have died. Hmm. 
So they understand this. Their interpretation is that this is a divine intervention to bring him out, even if it was for five years of his life, to give the South Africans a kind of a perception what they could do together to achieve the kind of country that all were longing for. But of course, there's no guarantee, like with, with those of us who are called to be priests and ministers and who start our own churches, because some so-called churches are started simply because it's a money-making issue. Mm. Nothing to do with Jesus. So, 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 so you have the counterfeits that are coming up that ultimately destroy the church. That's not the church that Jesus wanted us to have, but we have established it. All over the show, there's churches. Who truly represents what, what, was, what is the body of Christ really meant to be? Meant to be? So we we'll talk about the universal church. What, what is that? And, and how does Jesus represent that? In doing the marriage service, there's quite an interesting thing. You've been married now for 10 years, 11 years? Um, uh, yeah, going on <laughs> 12 years. <laughs> there's a day after we ask God's blessing on the couple to have children, right? And this is the prayer we pray in a marriage service, uh, which I always find fascinating. Uh, God, God, our maker, you have created marriage as a wonderful mystery, a sign of the spiritual unity between Christ and his church. Look in mercy on these, your servants, that the husband may love his wife as Christ loved his bride, the church. And also that so-and-so may love her husband as the church is called to love the Lord. Now, that is the ideal, isn't it? as the church is called to love our Lord. But how do you do so in a divided state when your value systems are so different and whether they actually portray that of the kingdom of God? Jesus' teaching here says she gives out of her poverty. She's not afraid to give out of her poverty. She takes a a, a faith risk. And though giving out of her poverty could bring shame on her because people could say, she, they could scandalize her and say, is this all you can give? How far is this going to help with whatever the mission is we've got to carry out? These guys who are wealthy, look at the large sums. They're going to make them ensure that the priest lives well. They're going to ensure that electricity is paid and all that. Whilst those things are important, what, do, what, what does God want us to celebrate? Where does God's focus? Um, so even the wealthy are called to ensure that they give out of their poverty. In other words, if money defines them, that's not what it should be. If they are able to give their large sums based on the fact that they are not, they are not, imprisoned to their wealth, then wouldn't their state of heart be celebrated um, by God? 
I, I'm interested in the fact that, as you said earlier on, there's such a lot of themes here. It's, it's the, the, the text says, scribes, beware of them. Look what mm-hmm. they're doing. Then he suddenly goes to the treasury. So what then has the scribes got to do with the treasury, rich people putting in large sums, and a poor widow coming to give? What was Jesus, what was the point Jesus was making? Is this, is this beware of the scribes and look at what God wants of the world? The attitude of a poor widow. The faith like, of a poor widow. Yeah. Yeah, but, but like it, it comes back to that idea of we must never lose sight of the man that Jesus was at the time. The part he played in society, what he was ultimately trying to achieve, and the strategies needed to achieve that. Where it was to yeah. me, who is is not a faithful person, it it plays out quite plainly as just the, the psychological tactics that are employed. I mean, I, I work in the, the industry of shaping opinion. Um, so I know the games that get played there. I know, like I can read through a heartfelt le- message from Quentin de Kock because I've written some of those heartfelt messages, you know? <laughs> I've written those statements myself. So it's 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 hard it's even harder for me to read these texts and not derive the subtext from it. I think you are reading into the text. When you write a heartfelt text, like you say, it normally comes after the person's been found out. Now it's heartfelt, but the action before that, what was it then? Why is there a shift? My question to you would be, did in the whole of the Gospels, in the way that Jesus is interpreted in the Old and New Testament, do you see an underlying text that you are reading into Assumedly, that was his his decision. When we read in the the Hebrew the Hebrews passage, the offering he made was to bring salvation. That was the call. It wasn't political takeover. It was to change hearts and minds and lives for the better. It was to celebrate what heaven celebrates. And yes, it was in opposition to the way the world has organized itself. Even the way the church has organized itself. You have scribes, leaders of the law, 
learned in their misbehaving, misrepresenting, and misrepresenting the very laws that they studied. He sacrificed his life for the salvation of all. Your soul and mine at the end of time looks for salvation, which we look for every day of our life. When we go to bed at night, there is, and when we wake up in the morning, there is that heartfelt sense of salvation. Yeah, but unfortunately, these stories were written after the fact. <laughs> So but we, they were, we never they were get... oral tradition. They were oral tradition before the fact. I could complicate things and ask you about your feelings of the kingdom of Judah and the rise of the Israelites and the Jewish faith, where there is zero ocular um, evidence for the occupancy and the origination from the specific sites that are considered holy, where it is a, how is it described? Uh, it was something like, it's it's a wonderful, what's it? It's a wonderful collection of myth and folk tales to justify a story of a people. I, I forget who, whose quote that is, and I'm probably misquoting it quite audibly, uh, but I, I, will, I will try and find it. Uh, but yeah, like like these these stories for me as someone who crafts narratives, who works as a journalist um, in my spare time mostly, <laughs> as a midwife to history, it's 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 easy for me to see the way the text is manipulated, the way these stories are crafted to achieve a specific outcome, to 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 tug on the correct psychological. Um, weaknesses, or at least to poke at the correct psychological weaknesses that exist within humans. Um, yeah, like, as as I said right at the beginning when we started this whole journey, um, those are my views. This this is my worldview that has been shaped by my career, by my interests, by um, the way my talent has played out in society, <laughs> um, the way that has been used to, to architect these kinds of messages. And yeah, that's my story, and I think I will leave it at that for this evening. Uh, if you I, would please I, I would, add would, a few closing messages. I would, I would leave it there. I would say that's why this is, this is a platform of exploration. That's why the Bible is still being studied. Yeah. That's why the Bible is being studied alongside other sciences. <clears throat> that's why... We are saying, we were saying early on, how was history and geography written in the past? Mm. Taught in schools and you get, you may have graduated based on what you thought was truth. But history, written history may not necessarily have captured the truth. Scripture is not focused firstly and primarily on history. There are historical entities that uh, was used as a vehicle of the story of faith. 
and so sure it started as an oral tradition. How it came to be written, that it was edited, is true. That's why we continue to read, study, reflect, question. What is the validity of any story of scripture? But what is the primary reason that we read scripture? Why, why do we go? The Anglicans say this, and I'm very much there. The Bible contains the message of salvation. That's the primary task that every soul is looking for, according to our standpoint. So, whatever worldview comes to read the scripture, it reads the scripture as a seasoned narrative that has been, a, I mean, is the best selling book. For centuries now. Why mm -hmm. has it been the best selling book? Why are people constantly looking at it, criticizing, breaking it down? I mean, I see a lot of stuff on, on, on what's his name that that wants to challenge scripture. <clears throat> and often those things fall short because we I'm still behind every story saying, where in this is the voice of God? Because that's what I want to hear. How through the interaction with Jesus do I hear the voice of God and the faith of the people? That's why we read and study scripture. That's why we read and study scripture in an explorative way as you have, have platformed this podcast over these two years. That is why it is okay for you to bring your worldview. That is why it is okay for us to look at this text today and tomorrow and discover new things about it that we can learn from. And this is going to continue for centuries still to come. Indeed. But if you could please add a few more brief reflections from the prayers of the church. Thank you very much for engaging with me um, on this journey every week. Thank you very much. It's my honor to be able to do it. We <coughs> think of the church as it celebrates the Holy Eucharist tomorrow. We pray, Lord, that it will be to your glory and thanksgiving for your mercies. We also pray, Lord, that we would not be afraid to look at Jesus and who Jesus is as presented to, to us in Scripture. We believe, Lord, that you promised through your Son to hear us then when we pray in his name. So bless the, the leaders of our church, bless our diocese, the Anglican Church of Southern Africa, and bless all churches, we pray for the African Council of Churches, the Western Province Council of Churches. Here we pray, Lord, that the church may be given your power to proclaim the gospel. So we think of all those who will preach tomorrow. We pray that Christian people may be united in truth, live together in love and reveal your glory in this world. 
We recognize, Lord, that we will not be able to function without the resources of the world, which you have given, and its beauty. I think of Wellington and Riversdale, the beauty of South Africa, of Cape Town, the mountains around us. May we <coughs> continue to have reverence for your creation. And coming out of the, the COP26 meeting, the whole thing of climatic changes, there may be a deeper reverence for your creation and a definite committed stewardship to the gifts you provide for us. This leads us on to pray for the nations and the leaders of the nations. We think of all the promises that were made at COP26, that they will be carried out to the fullest especially that we may hear the voice of young people. Here in our own country, we thank you for the local elections. We are saddened by the many who chose not to vote. But Lord, this means deeper soul-searching for us. Now, for those who are in authority, give them wisdom and may they receive it. Direct this and every nation, Lord, into the way of justice and peace. And may we allow ourselves to be directed that way so that all may honor one another and seek the common good. Lord, may we stand up for our constitution and our democracy. Continue to bless <coughs> the matriculants as they write exams and all others who are writing. Bless, Lord, all families and bless our friends as well. Bless our neighborhoods, those with whom we work, who have special claims upon us. Bless them with your grace and may we serve Christ in them and love one another as he loved us. Recognizing how Jesus honored the giving of a poor widow. Let us not forget the marginalized of our society. Those people who receive the food made from our soup kitchen. Then we pray for those in trouble, sorrow, need, sickness, or any other adversities. For there are many people who have been made refugees, who are outcasts in the forgotten of society. We pray for them. We are grateful for those that are vaccinated, but we think of the many lords still resisting it. Right now we are told that we have not yet reached a level of 60% of fully vaccinated people. So we pray for your wisdom, Lord, in all of us. For COVID is still infecting people. May you be with those, Lord, struggling with other illnesses. Give them courage, healing, and a steadfast trust in your love. We remember those who in this past week have died. May you grant them a share in your kingdom and us with them. We thank you for the ancestors of the faith, the ancestors of the human race. We've recalled some of them tonight, today, Lord, in this conversation. Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, Nowhere near perfect people, but they stood out 
so we can learn from what they were felt called to do, but also we can learn from their mistakes. Now we ask your blessing on Africa and all continents, that you would guard our children, guide the leaders, and give us peace for Jesus Christ's sake. We do pray a special blessing on all who will this week celebrate their birthdays and their wedding anniversaries. May they experience the continuous outpouring of your love into their lives by your availing presence through Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us. Lord, as we go into this week, may we go in the knowledge that the peace of the Lord is always with us. So in conclusion, we blessing and commissioning my sisters and brothers, go out and share God's love with all. Do not slay for things that are not life-giving, but trust in God's provision and give generously of all you have. And may God watch over you and provide for you. May Christ Jesus be to you a restorer of life. And may the Holy Spirit lead you in the ways of humble generosity. So go in peace with courage to love and serve the Lord. And we go in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you, everybody, for joining in. Again, we extend the invitation for you to join us in this conversation. Uh, we Any comments are very important for us. Um, and also to, to say to you that Lindsay and I really enjoy... Um, being able to create this platform of worship and reflection. We thank Lindsay for his hard work to make this work. So may God bless you all.